Please be aware, if you're Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, you should know that this episode contains the voices and names of deceased persons. Hello. Hello. You're listening to History Lab. I'm your host, Tamsin Peach, and in our third episode of The Law's Way of Knowing, we're investigating signatures. You want me to sign here? Yeah, yeah, with your finger. Just with my finger? Yeah, sorry, yeah. Okay. And how the strange squiggly marks we make have been used to control and influence. Some of them are crosses, some of them are squiggles, but they also have these red thumbprints on them. The federal government has spent millions of dollars defending this case and tried to have it thrown out of court. We put our names and, uh, and a lot of us also put what our First Nation is on that canvas. This was actually part of a much larger bureaucratic system, an armoury, I call it. The judge accepted his mother's thumbprint as evidence that she had authorised his removal. One, two, three, four, five. I won't count all, but there's about 30 there. We have survived long before this and we'll survive again. Here's senior producer Olivia Rosenman. What is a signature? Well, the more I research signatures, the more difficult that question becomes. This is Trish Luca. She's from the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology, Sydney, and she's been investigating signatures for a while now. I think I would define it as something like a unique identifying mark that signifies a person. So generally we assume that a signature is the signed name of a person, particularly for the purposes of identification, like in banking or other official transactions. But Trish says that the law doesn't really pin down what exactly a signature is. Even though signatures have great significance in terms of legal transactions, there's been very, very little guidance from the courts about defining what is a signature. Trish has learned that courts have accepted a wide range of things as legal signatures. Seal imprints, rubber stamps, initials, partial signatures, words other than a name, trade names, printed names, as well as a traditional handwritten cursive signature. And Trish told me about one case from the late 90s when the Australian Federal Court decided that a thumbprint was a signature that proved a mother's consent for the removal of her child. It was the landmark action in relation to the Stolen Generations. In December 1996, Peter Gunner and Lorna Cubillo filed a legal claim against the Australian government. They were both taken from their families and sent to residential schools where they were deprived of their culture, forbidden to speak their own languages, beaten, starved and sexually abused. They argued that there was a vicarious liability on the part of the Commonwealth Government. Their removals were performed by individuals who acted as agents under the legislation of the Commonwealth. Peter Gunner. He was seven years old in 1956 when he was taken from his home in Utopia and sent to St Mary's Hostel in Alice Springs. The Commonwealth Government argued that the removal had been performed within the law. The court judgment is almost 700 pages long. So this was a huge case. There were over 100 days of hearings across three different states. There were hundreds of witnesses that were called on each side. Such a 
big case must have cost a lot of money. Right. Estimates vary, but Peter Gunner's lawyer, Jack Rush, worked out from parliamentary questions that the case cost the government somewhere between 15 and $20 million. It is clear that the efforts and the expense that the Commonwealth Government went to to counter the claim made by Cabillo and Gunner is evidence of the fact that they had grave concerns about the possibility of further claims being made by members of the Stolen Generations. Trish Luca wanted to know more about the case. So in 2004, she travelled to the Northern Territory to visit Peter Gunner in Utopia where he had returned to live as an adult. So I travelled to Alice Springs. I hadn't booked myself a vehicle to drive out to Utopia and so there was really only one vehicle left in Alice Springs. It was a very, very large Toyota Troopy that I had to drive out. Actually, it was a lot of fun. Utopia is on land that belongs to the Aliawara and Anmajira people. It's very, very strongly coloured. It's a beautiful, rich, red, orange sand. The trees and the scrub are a really distinctive green. It's an incredibly memorable country. It's around 350 kilometres northeast of Alice Springs. It took longer than I expected. I was late. But Gunnar didn't mind. He had a really fantastic handshake. I mean, I remember his handshake was really strong. Trish recorded her interview on a technology that, in retrospect, was nearing the end of its shelf life. I had a small micro cassette for those who might remember that particular technology. This is pre the use of digital files. So the ancient past then, Olivia. Yeah, totally. And if you haven't seen a micro cassette, it looks like a mini version of the cassette tape that you would have put in your Walkman. And if you don't know what a Walkman is, well, it's a small personal tape player around about the size. Uh, come on, Olivia, back to 2020. Okay, you can just look up a picture online. Anyway, Trish had the tape carefully filed away and almost 15 years later she rustled it up and generously offered to let us listen. See, historians have been doing audio long before podcasting came along. Ha! Yeah, so there was just one slight problem. Trish kept the tape but not the player. So we had a recording of Peter Gunner telling his story in his own words but for a while there I thought we weren't going to be able to hear it. What does the beeping mean? Uh But when we finally did crack this 20-year-old technology, we learned how time takes a heavy toll on magnetic tape housed in a tiny plastic case. So this is an interview with Peter Gunner at his home. Peter Gunner passed away in 2005. Trish recorded this interview just one year before he died. It's never been publicly heard until now. We got special permission from his daughter, Rebecca, to play it. The cruelest thing you can ever do in human life is take a child from a mother and never return her. You can never take a kid away and prison the kid and believe the kid has no relatives to go to. And it's wrong. A key component of the Crown's response to Peter Gunner's claim was a single-page document written on a typewriter. 
Its title is Form of Consent by a Parent. It says, I, Topsy Kundrulba, and that part has been inserted, being a full-blood Aboriginal, in brackets, female, within the meaning of the Aboriginal's Ordinance, 1918 to 1953 of the Northern Territory, and residing at... Utopia Station, aged seven years, to be, I desire my son to be educated and trained in accordance with accepted European standards, to which he is entitled by reason of his caste, which my son may derive the benefit of a standard European... And on the page was a signature of sorts. And then at the bottom, it says, signed of my own free will, this day of blank, 1956, in the presence of blank. And then there is uh, a mark, a thumbprint or fingerprint, uh, with the words her and mark on either side and Topsy and Kundalba above and below. So during the court case, the government's lawyers said that this form proved that Peter Gunner's mother had consented to his removal? Yes, and ultimately the judge, Justice O'Loughlin, agreed. Most importantly, there was his mother's thumbprint on a form of request that asked that Peter be taken to St Mary's and given a Western education. I have concluded that Peter went to St Mary's at his mother's request. On the 11th of August 2000, both Lorna Cubillo and Peter Gunner's claims were dismissed. I accepted Mr Gunner's evidence that he had a most unhappy childhood at St Mary's, and I accepted his evidence that he was the victim of a sexual assault. Nevertheless, I concluded that the evidence did not justify a finding that the Director of Native Affairs removed Mr Gunner from his family against the wishes of his mother. Is this actually Justice O'Loughlin speaking? Yeah, it is. It's from a summary of the judgment that was read out live in the courtroom and broadcast on national TV. The federal court sent me a copy from their archive. It was on VHS tape. VHS tape. Yeah, making this episode of History Lab has really given me some great insight into analogue audiovisual production. When someone signs with a fingerprint, there's usually something else that's signified too, right? I think a thumbprint signifies so much more because what it signifies is, first of all, that the person whose mark it is is unable to sign their name. So that suggests that they are illiterate in the language that's required. So from the thumbprint on the form, we can understand that Peter Gunner's mother, Topsy, couldn't read or write English. Do we know if she could even understand it? Peter Gunner gave evidence that when he returned to Utopia as an adult and his mother was still alive, he was unable to speak to her in his language because he had lost his language by having been stolen. That was one of the basis of the claim. And he was unable to tell her what had happened to him. So we do know that Topsy Kundrulba did not speak English. And we have the evidence of a witness to tell us that. I don't think my mother would have given uh, would have would have understood yeah. what 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 was the the, the, the written document of the, the government had to to get her to put a thumbprint on. She wouldn't have known anything about it, what was written in that. She wouldn't even have, would have understood. 
I think we simply do not know what she believed would happen to her son as a result of putting her mark on that form. We cannot know that. And I believe that we need to think carefully about interpreting something like a form of consent as an indication that someone provided consent to the removal of their child without a much greater consideration of the circumstances in which that occurred. In the courtroom, Peter Gunner recounted his memories of the day he was taken. He remembered crying and yelling. He said he didn't know why he was put on the back of the truck or where he was being taken. But ultimately, the judge said what he described as a line of documentation showed that Peter's mother, Topsy, had given her consent for her child to be taken away. And he preferenced those documents over Peter Gunner's oral testimony. According to Trish, that's not surprising. Traditionally, oral testimony is the preferred form of evidence in the common law system. When it has come to claims made by Indigenous people in Australia, there has tended to be a privileging of documentary evidence, even when there are claimants who are able to give oral testimony. The document with Topsy's thumbprint is now held in the National Archives of Australia. You can find a digital copy on their website. The original paper document is held in their Darwin repository. It's part of a series of over 17,500 documents, all relating to Aboriginal people, created by the Northern Territory Administration between 1915 and 1978. There's a lot of material in the archives that pertains to Indigenous people because they have been the subject of control for so long. They're the most documented people in Australia. So is there another way we can understand the form with Topsy's thumbprint and all the other documents created about Aboriginal people? This form of consent um, was actually part of a much larger bureaucratic system, an armoury, I call it, of a colonialist regime that was in force at the time and under which Aboriginal people were subjugated. That bureaucratic system, the armoury Trish describes, created reams and reams of paper documents that ended up being submitted as evidence in Peter Gunner's case. There were reports, lots of government reports. There was lots of correspondence. There were certificates. Declarations. Applications. There are surveys. There are inventories of individuals. These are all really well-established methods of control of people, which you will find particularly large quantity of them in settler colonial contexts. In 1956, when Peter was taken, people were becoming more aware of the reality of the government's policies regarding Aboriginal children. Just at the point when there appeared to be some level of concern on the part of humanitarian organisations and also on the part of 
international humanitarian groups about what was going on in Australia with the theft of Aboriginal children. It was at that point that a greater amount of forms were produced. I think that that can be read as a a kind of reaction to the need to produce justifications and uh, records to support decisions. So the archives tell stories through their sheer volume as well as through what they actually say, through their content. I still say the Commonwealth attacked us on the grounds of criminalised and not on the evidence that was presented in that court for the wrongdoing, wrong treatment of removal of children. They treated me and Lorna like a couple of criminals in that case. And and, and, uh, that's why that evidence doesn't count. The evidence that... The Commonwealth witnesses' evidence count more than me and Lorna's. So let me get this straight. This court case is happening in the late 1990s. John Howard's Prime Minister. And on the one hand, it's just after the release of the Bringing Them Home report that uncovered the Australian government's history of child removal. But on the other hand, the government is also spending millions of dollars defending their actions. And during the trial, it's Peter Gunner who said he was made to feel like a criminal. Not only that... Gunner had to sit in court and listen to evidence given by the very man who took him away back on that day in 1956. Peter Gunner, mm-hmm. he was about five, four or five when I first saw him, and he'd been living down the camp. He, he had a mother, but he had uh, his father, was apparently a white person, who he'd never seen, at that, and he was just... Uh, one of the kids running around the camp, it was going to go nowhere because not having a an Aboriginal father, he couldn't uh, become part and parcel of the whole tribal group. This is Harry Kitching. In 1956, he was working as a patrol officer for what was then called the Native Affairs Branch. I thought there might be a slim chance that he was still alive, so I tried to track him down. Turns out Kitching died in 2014. But what I did find is this interview with him that was recorded in 1999. I can't believe you found a recording both from Gunnar and from the man that actually put him on the back of a truck. I know. It's part of the National Library's Bringing Them Home oral history project. He was saying that we practically dragged him kicking and screaming into the home. But all you're trying to do is... Get them a decent education because you know they're going to be a misfit in the tribal background where they were. Okay, so it seems that in Harry's mind it didn't really matter whether or not Peter's mother had consented. Maybe not, but the way Peter describes it, he says his mother was always waiting for him to come back. I think she would have felt strongly after a few years gone by that one day her child was going to turn up. The child they took away was going to come back maybe five, ten years, but it didn't happen. 
When he gave evidence in the trial, Kitching said he didn't remember whether the writing on the form was explained to Peter's mother. But despite all of the questions about Topsy's thumbprint, Justice O'Loughlin saw that piece of paper as evidence that exculpated the government. I think they ignored uh, everything what I said, yeah. uh, all the way to the thumbprint. They just didn't want to know nothing of you know. So you think they ignored it? On the form of consent by a parent, Topsy's thumbprint sits at the bottom right corner of the page in blue ink. It's smudged, making the loops and whirls really hard to distinguish. A rubber stamp has marked the date of May 27, 1956, encircled by the words Records Branch General Administration Section Darwin NT. Trish remembers the first time she saw it. I actually remember it coming through the fax machine. I, I think it's possible to think about documents as having an animate force. And that's something, an idea that I developed much later in my research career. But perhaps at that early moment when that form was coming off the fax, I had a sense of that in some way. It felt uh, personal. But if a thumbprint is a signature and the law understands a signature as something that authenticates a document, then isn't it no surprise that the court concluded in the way it did? Well, here's what Peter Gunner told Trish about the outcome of his case four years after the judgment. I knew I had to fight a white man's system here, yeah. right, for a start, the, yeah. the European law system here. Yeah. It's not my system. No. It's not... a. Uh, you know, an Aboriginal law system, it's a European system. In another government archive, the thumb and fingerprints of Aboriginal people speak back to Anglo law. One, two, three, four, five, six. I would wait out of all, but there's about 30 there. This is Will Stubbs. He's counting the fingerprints of Yongu elders on a document that was sent to the Australian Parliament in August 1963. It was sent as a follow-up to the Year Carla Bach petitions one of the many petitions Aboriginal people have made to the government for their rights and for their land. The petition is now part of the Parliamentary Archive. I wanted to know more about its history, and this led me to Will. Well, some might call it remote, but from our perspective, we're in the centre of the universe. Will lives in Yakala in the Northern Territory, right at the top of the land on the western side of the Gulf of Carpentaria. It's 1,000 kilometres east of Darwin and a 27-hour drive. You know, there's so many beautiful things about it. White sand, crystal clear water, coral, rainforests, sand dunes. Will is not Aboriginal, but his wife and daughter are Yongu women and he speaks the language fluently. So the Yongu people sent a petition to Parliament in 1963. They discovered that the government had leased 300 square kilometres of their land to a Swiss mining company to extract bauxite, without asking them or even letting them know. So their petition laid out a couple of simple requests. <laughs> That's the voice of Dila Yunupingu reading the petition in Nyungu. Dila is the daughter of Mungarawi Yunupingu, a senior Gumach cultural leader and one of the original signatories of the petition. 
you read the text, it's the most mild, inoffensive uh, set of requests rather than demands. It's really just saying, uh, you know, we've found out that you have stolen our land. This is a pricey, of course, uh, probably a rough one. We uh, wanted to point out to you that this land is ours. It's always been ours. It's quite important to us. We wonder if you would mind coming and speaking with us before you progress this any further. And perhaps when you come, you could bring an interpreter so that we can be understood. And when you say bark petitions, what exactly do you mean? They were presented on two sheets from a stringy bark tree. Each one is marked with written text and then painted with pipe clay, charcoal and ochre. It's quite an exercise to prepare these panels of bark and to find a typewriter in 1963 and to try and put these words into English and then to translate it into Yomamata and to submit that, find a way to get it to Canberra. In those days, you know, there's no road access from here. Um, there's no phones. It's just really by telegram and monthly boat that you can get any communication out of here. And the word came back that the petition were not accepted. The initial petition had just 11 signatures, and they were mostly from the young people from the area. It's my understanding that Paul Hasluck, was the Minister for the Interior, declined to table them or opposed their tabling on the basis that his information from the mission hierarchy is that the signatories were unrepresentative of the young people as a whole. But instead of giving up at that point... Um, they created this amazing document. A document that could be easily understood by the government's system. And so they can't do what Anglo-Australians do and sign their names, so they've made a mark. Some of them are crosses, some of them are squiggles, there's a backward C, there's a couple of circles, but they also have these red thumbprints on them. Um, Their name is written out in beautiful cursive, and then that act of signing through a cross and a thumbprint is witnessed by either a literate Yongwa or a missionary with their signature at the end of the row. These lists of names is a roll call of the leaders of every clan and the leaders of ceremony. And it's a, a beautiful list of amazing people who acted in this way. And it rebutted the claim by the government So where did the idea for the list of thumbprints come from? Perhaps it's a reference to some kind of bookkeeping procedure, but it's not a Yonga way to indicate identity. Um, You know, it's fitting the system, trying to make the system accept this thing, which is pretty firmly founded in that system's processes. And the thing is that these people aren't just names to us. These people are heroes, each and every one of them. And while the document with Topsy Kundrilba's thumbprint was given the utmost attention by the Commonwealth, it seems this document has been mostly ignored. That that beautiful document, the thumbprint petition, was simply folded into the parliamentary records and didn't see the light of day. But it did have an impact. There's a lot of people who regard the Bark Petition as being Australia's Magna Carta. If you think at the time that they were created in 1963, It's still a number of years before the referendum 
allows Aboriginal people to be counted as human in the census. At the point that these men came together and also women who signed the petition, they were to be regarded as fauna and non-human. This was enshrined in the Constitution. And actually, where the Bark petitions are now hanging in Parliament House is in the same room as a 13th century copy of the Magna Carta and the Australian Constitution. The Yongo have been very honourable and you would think, in a way, naive in uh, granting the benefit of the doubt to Anglo-Australians that they are lawful people, that they have processes and that these processes are sufficient to protect against the might is right approach. They have generally been let down in that regard. constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. Standing in red sand and surrounded by people from across Australia's First Nations. On the 26th of May, 2017, Professor Megan Davis, a cobble-cobble woman from Queensland and a professor of law, read aloud the Uluru Statement from the Heart. The statement was the culmination of months of dialogues across the country and a four-day summit at Uluru. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. The statement calls for voice, treaty and truth, for an Aboriginal voice to Parliament and a Makarata Commission, a process of agreement-making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. People were crying tears of joy and hope and um, and uh, embracing each other and... Uh, just really congratulating each other on on a really hard task, which was to reach a consensus when we came from so many different places and, um, you know, so many different levels of healing, our own political beliefs, our own experiences. This is Thomas Mayer, a Zenadkes man born and raised on Larrakia land in Darwin. He's the National Indigenous Officer for the CFMEU. I wanted to talk to Thomas because he was one of the delegates at the summit. He'd lined up with all of the other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander delegates to sign their names on the Uluru Statement from the Heart document. Oh, it took the morning, really, uh, if I remember correctly, and uh, it was a long line. And, uh, you know, even though I was one of the last to line up, I think, and uh, didn't stop smiling the whole, the whole time I was lining up, uh, I remember my face was sore from smiling just because we were all so excited and happy um, and... Uh, and confident that what we'd come up with was the right thing for our people. The statement is written in the centre of a canvas measuring 1.8 by 1.6 metres. Surrounding the text are 250 signatures. We put our our names and uh, and a lot of us also put what our First Nation is uh, on that canvas. 
So to their individual legal mark, they also added their collective identity. So it was very much a mark of identity as well, you know, to say that I'm here, um, I'm doing my best for my people and, uh, and I'm going to record that, um, that this is who I'm here for. In the middle of the canvas is the text. Surrounding the text are the signatures. And around the signatures is artwork. The art depicts songlines. Coming from the north, east, south and west, these ancient stories converge at Uluru, much like all of our stories converge there, coming from so many different places. When I saw the canvas for the first time and I held it on the stage at Karma when it was presented to the audience and the Prime Minister and opposition leader were there, I felt that it had a lot of power. I felt that this canvas was a powerful tool in trying to convince um, not only politicians but also the Australian people to walk with us in this movement to try and achieve the changes that are called for. In 2017, when the then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull spoke on stage at the Gama Festival, he told the audience he was giving careful consideration to the recommendations in the statement. But then, at a press conference outside the festival, he started to back away from the positivity he'd shown on stage. So does Thomas Mayer have a special connection to the Uluru Statement from the Heart? Yes, he does. When Thomas saw the power of the canvas on stage at Gama, he decided to take it on a road trip. I decided to take the Uluru Statement to the people um, in any way that I can, to conferences, to communities, from remote communities to you know, the big cities, and, um, and just started to try and build the, the people's movement, really. And I had the support of the elders to do it, and, and that was my role in the first 18 months of this campaign. He travelled all around the country. It was quite spontaneous, so from the different places that I would take it to, um, someone would contact me soon after and say, hey, this is on, there's a big crowd there, can you bring it here, you know? And so it was, it was non-stop travel for 18 months, so I hardly saw my family. Um, and, uh, and I think it was important to build the, um, the base of supporters that has ensured that we haven't taken no for an answer and that this is still alive today. It's a live political document. So what kind of response did he get? Well, while he met the odd sceptic, he told me people were mostly supportive. And Thomas attributes that response partly to the fact that the requests in the statement are so reasonable, but also that it's addressed not to the politicians, but to the people. That's a lesson they learned from petitions past, like the Yirrkala Buck petitions, the Larrakia petition and the Barunga Statement. I think one of the most powerful lessons from those previous statements is they are gathering dust in the halls of parliament. They were addressed to the wrong people. They were addressed to kings and queens and parliaments. The lesson from all of those is that they have always been ignored by them. They have always been dismissed or diminished or promised and then failed to deliver on. This time, what we learned was that the Uluru Statement was not about those politicians or those decision makers at that level. It's to the Australian people. And in that way, the signatures on the statement could also be seen as the sign-off of a letter. This is a letter that says this is our consensus. It's, it's to the Australian people and it is signed by 250 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander representing all of the regions of the continent and its adjacent islands uh, and saying, you know, this is what we collectively want. Thank 
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands, and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did, according to the reckoning of our culture from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial, and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. You've been listening to History Lab, a podcast made on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, whose land was never ceded. This episode is part of our series, The Law's Way of Knowing, where we look at the intersection of history and the law. Special thanks go to our collaborating historian, Trish Luca. This episode was made by senior producer Olivia Rosenman with research and production assistance from Julia Carcatzel and Alison Chan. The supervising producer was Sarah Mashman. The executive producer was Emma Lancaster. Sound engineering and mixing was by Output Media. And our story consultant and editor was Belinda Lopez. And there's a whole raft of people that need to be thanked. To Will Stubbs and Thomas Mayer for being so generous with your time. And to the brilliant archivists, Glenn Worthington from Australian Parliament House, Peter Hobbins from the National Archives Australia, and Bruce Phillips from the Federal Court. I also want to thank Rebecca Gunner, Peter Gunner's daughter, and Michael from the Urupuncha Corporation in Utopia, Anne McGrath and Dila Unipingu, who read out the Yirrkala Bark petitions in Yungu. And then there were our tech wizards. Darren Scarce, who managed to find us a microcassette player, and another good friend who helped us out when the federal court sent us VHS tapes. History Lab is made by the Australian Centre for Public History and Impact Studios at UTS in collaboration with our media partner, 2SER 107.3 FM. You can find out more on the History Lab website, historylab.net. <laughs>